you know, it's lonely, quote unquote, at the top. Well, it is and it can be. But the reality is that part of how we function and, and how we continue to develop optimism is through our relationships with other people. So I think it's important for us to have those those venues. The other one I wanted to mention, too, is um, last year I had the, the privilege of being chair of our statewide council of presidents. So um, Longwood University, University of Virginia. And by the way, I, I have the, the privilege of being able to tell you now, we, we have the best group of presidents I have ever worked with in this state. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. And this week's guest is Michael Rao, who is president of Virginia Commonwealth University, a research and teaching institution, major research and teaching institution in Virginia. Um, welcome, President Rao. Great. Thank you very much, Doug. Thank you, Bridget. It's an honor to be here. And Bridget um, has a little news to share. For those at home, know that the University Innovation Alliance is a collection of institutions who are scaling innovation to eliminate their equity gaps and actually improve outcomes in, and graduate more more, produce more high quality graduates across the country. And that group ha is very limited, but we have added a new member and it is Virginia Commonwealth University. So we are very proud to welcome uh, President Rao and VCU into the UIA family. Great, thank you. This is a real honor and a privilege and hopefully we'll be able to learn lots and add lots. Uh, I'll ask the question that uh, Bridget probably already knows the answer to, which is what attracted you and, uh, and what do you think attracted uh, UIA to you? What, what, where do you see them, the fit and what are you hoping to gain for for your institution? Yeah, so I mean, it's a, a, a lot of very like institutions with a lot of the same kinds of complexities, you know, um, the sort of public um, nature of our institutions. But, you know, we, we have a lot in common. I think the presidents actually have a lot in common and that we're really motivated to make a difference. We, we want to, as London Johnson would have said, you know, what's the presidency for? I think we all think about that. I think we think about how do we use these presidencies to advance these institutions and the mission that, you know, we advertise on all of our websites. How do we make that become more real for more people? The other thing is that we, we are mostly research institutions, too, and I think we're really geared toward, you know, research that matters to people, you know, translational research that can be used right away. And, you know, the other thing, you know, Doug and Bridget, is that um, nobody has all the ideas. We know that, right? And so no matter how large our institutions are, and many of ours are, are huge, of course, but, you know, you just won't have all the ideas and you want to be in an environment where you have regular contact, not, not at the annual conference, but very regular contact with colleagues um, in a comfortable 
environment um, where you can talk about things and, you know, talk about errors and things that go wrong, <laughs> messed up, need to, to rethink and do that with colleagues who really matter. So I think we all want to lift this country and lift the people who have not really been able to be as much a part of it. Doug, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, that the way that we have identified institutions is we actually have analyzed all of them, all our ones and our twos across the country. Based on their data initially, we wanted to look for institutions that really took seriously the idea that you could be large and good. But you also had to be educating a large, a, a disproportionately large population of low income, first generation students of color. And then we also analyzed presidential speeches. We looked at initiatives. We looked at how they showed up as collaborative partners in other organizations so we could kind of get a sense of who shared our values. And VCU was easily one, uh, was an easy front runner coming out of the gate. And part of it, I would say, because this ends up being about the presidents, is President Rao's relationship with the other UIA presidents, because he's already demonstrated that he's someone who's willing to talk about the hard stuff who's really, you know, when he says something, he means it and is willing to move his institution in the direction necessary for the future economic competitiveness of the country. So for us, it was a it was a no brainer. And uh, we're just really delighted to move forward with them as one of our uh, our new partners. Thanks. So well said. I'm curious because not um, what you focused on in terms of collaboration and cross fertilization across institutions isn't so much how higher ed has historically operated and I would say still probably doesn't quite as much as as some of us who sit on the outside or, or near it think it ought to. I'm curious kind of what you, why you think that's so important for a place like VCU. Where do you see you having the most to gain, you and the institution having the most to gain from learning from other institutions? In our case, we, you know, have made great strides. So, you know, we were under 50% in terms of our six-year graduation rate when I came. We're approaching 70. But we've hovered in that zone. And so I feel as if, you know, there must be, there are things that our colleague institutions are doing that, you know, we haven't learned yet or we haven't quite understood yet. I think you have to parallel a lot of these things that, that you do because our populations are so diverse, even within our inst our own institutions. And so you may bring certain groups along, but which groups have you got to continue to work on? And that's where your colleagues that are doing definitely different things than you are can really be helpful. And so I think having that network of institutions that has a mindset already, cultural mindset that we do share, and we include in that sharing things that we didn't do well um, so that you don't repeat the mistakes of others, um, I think is really very helpful. I think it's really important for us to, you know, to think about the fact that, you know, we are all human as well, Doug, and we're made up of energy. And a lot of that energy is, is impacted by the energy of the people around you. And so one of the other things I think we as presidents sort of expect to gain from each other is you know, sharing that positive energy about what's possible, particularly when you hit like a, you know, a, a block or when you feel like you're not making as much progress as you wish you could make. Um, so, there, I mean, I could go on and on. The, the bottom line is you, you have so much to gain by working together. And, you know, we all have to learn, too, that as resilient as higher education has been so proud of being for centuries, literally, you know, I'm not proud of that because what it's done is it's left a lot of people out. I, I think we all have that same mindset as well. You know, what is the real purpose of public education? 
It's to, to lift the lives of others. It's really to help achieve the American dream. So let's tie it all back to, you know, why this country exists. You know, we wanted to bring people here together so that when they worked hard and, you know, became a part of what we were trying to achieve, you can be as successful as you want. You can realize all the potential that you have. So I'm, I'm really excited about working together with Michael and all of these other folks who share that same optimism and excitement. If I'm not in that environment, I, I, I'm not I don't have the same level of energy. I'm not I'm not as excited. If I feel like I'm improving more lives of others, not just the same number of lives I may have helped be a part of improving last year, then I, I'm, I'm not as excited. I want this, you know, I want to leverage the presidency more and more and more every year that I'm I'm doing this. I am Ray Magliozzi, co-host of NPR's Car Talk. If you're working to solve the biggest challenges in higher education, you've come to the right podcast. And if you're looking for a student retention platform proven to get results, check out Mainstay.com. I may be biased because the CEO of Mainstay just happens to be my son. So instead of taking my word for it, you can trust the research they've done with Georgia State, Brown, and Yale as proof that Mainstay improves enrollment, retention, and well-being. Visit Mainstay.com research to learn more. So I'm curious about, in general, the, the benefit of collaboration as a president. So my sure. observation is that we have big associations, we have the NCAA, we have, there are certain things like the CIC or the Big Ten Academic Alliance. There are some places, uh, although one, that one's more provost, there are some places where presidents can get together and team up on shared challenges. Sure. And I would love to know for you, of all the various collaborative things that you've been a part of in the past, what things do you think have been the most critical for you as a president to be successful? Are there any particular collaborative endeavors prior to this that have really um, helped you solve a problem or that you think is it's just an essential place that, for presidents to be having those kinds of conversations? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think about every year, you know, there were some of these things. So one good example, Bridget, is that um, I was on the NCAA board and I thought, oh, boy, another board, a lot of travel, et cetera, et cetera. It was worth every second I put into it because I got so much back. Um, and what I really got back out of that was somewhat during the board meetings, but even more importantly, in between meetings, when I could chat with a president who is dealing with a similar issue, whether it be athletics or closely aligned to that, um, and frankly say, hey, what do you think? And um, those relationships are critical. The fact of the matter is, you know, people love to say, and it's absolutely true, you know, it's lonely, quote unquote, at the top. Well, it is and it can be. But the reality is that part of how we function and, and how we continue to develop optimism is through our relationships with other people. So I think it's important for us to have those those venues. The other one I wanted to mention, too, is um, last year I had the, the privilege of being chair of our statewide council of presidents. So um, Longwood University, University of Virginia. And by the way, I, I have the, the privilege of being able to tell you now, we, we have the best group of presidents I have ever worked with in this state. I mean, these people are so collaborative, so interested in sharing with each other. There's a lot that we, we do, you know, together, frankly. And um, I think everyone treats everyone with tremendous respect. I'm very, very proud of the Virginia presidents. But in the middle of COVID, 
frankly, in the beginning of COVID, I mean, we were actually literally getting together sometimes two, three times a week, um, first by phone. And then we, of course, like the rest of the world, started doing everything, you know, video um, as well. We put our we put subgroups together. There are things that we rolled out that we could never have done unless we had done it together. Um, but but a lot of it is relationships and trust. And the more you you know, we're human, and so you're going to develop more trust when you're with people more. But when you get you know, when you go back to your your institution, which can sometimes feel like an island, you know, you can get lost in a lot of things. Um, and that's one of the worries I have about presidents going forward. You know, um, a we need to develop you know, a very new, we've got to develop a class of, of presidents ready to come in because at some point we're all going to age out. Um, and, and as we do that, we've got to teach them to stay in that space that is important for presidents to stay. If you let everything around you control you, you'll be involved in everything that doesn't matter to the presidency, really. I mean, the vision is critical. Um, having a plan that goes with that vision that everyone can interpret and make sense of, putting the right people in place. Hiring is huge. It's one of the biggest things we do. You know, I don't just like interview people. I take them to dinner and I do a ton of reference checking. And I've had search consultants say, well, we do all that. I said, no, no, I want to do it myself. I want to hear people tell me what they think of this person. Sometimes I even go to where they are so that I can find out whether or not the match will be right. Hiring is absolutely key, but spending our time on those things that are part of our vision, those strategic things that improve your graduation rate, that truly put the needs of students, and in my case, patients first. All of those strategic things that you need to be doing um, are critical. But a lot of where you get the ability to do that is when you're talking to other presidents and you're saying to, to these other presidents, these are the things I'd like to achieve. You know, a lot of those strategies for me get shaped by those conversations with other presidents because a lot of them are better at some of the things that I'm doing than, than I am. And they've already been through it so I can learn from them. So when people always talk about isomorphism in higher ed, I, I act. I frame it as that's the justification for collaboration, because if we are all designed the same, yeah. that means we have the same problems. Yeah. And the idea that our problems are special and different and we can tinker in silos to solve them is such a waste uh, when, in fact, most of the time, every place I go, it's the same kind of problem. It's a different flavor, a different color, a different you know, height. But in general, it's the same kind of stuff. So creating spaces for presidents to talk to each other is essential because otherwise I don't think that people understand that often with the presidency, most of the time a president will go through their entire day, 15 yeah. to 30 minute increments. And the only interactions they have are with people who either want something from them or who work for them. Exactly. And it can be a really dangerous space because it becomes somewhat of a echo chamber. There can be a space where you have almost like a, a time sycophants in the echo chamber where people are just telling you how great you are and how great the ideas are and that you don't have a space to actually go to figure out whether or not what you're doing really is that great or, you know, getting an honest assessment from another president, being able to actually figure stuff out together. I did want to talk about a place where collaboration was needed. And you had shared with me um, about what it was like to work with a longstanding president around the idea of politics. But can you share a bit more about why that would be a space that would be really helpful for presidents to team up? 
Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there was a, a time when, you know, a lot of us were really only seeing each other at these annual conferences. And by the way, Bridget, to your previous point, just in a, a quickly uh, appended comment, I found that what those things were doing annually is we were all talking about problems and then we'd say, OK, next year when we get together, we'll talk more about solutions. So what what you and Michael and others have built here is really valuable because you're getting together often. And by the way, a lot of groups got together. I, I, I chaired the Urban Serving Universities group of APLU last year, too. And we got together every week. It was super valuable. By the way, tremendous overlap with the UIA with that group as well. But to your point, um, a lot of times during the breaks, frankly, not during the sessions, um, I would get together with my colleagues, um, a couple in particular who had been around longer than me. And I'd say, hey, I've got this really challenging, you know, board situation um, with these, you know, two board members or X number of board members who just can't seem to get along. And one of my jobs I always said was to keep my board a team that's focused. But as you know, you know, boards are usually appointed by governors and those governors can be from one party or another party. And then you end up with a collection of board members from two different parties. And of course, you often will get board members with sometimes big personalities um, and, and significant you know, needs to, to be recognized and all of that. Um, I really don't have that now, thank goodness. I'm so grateful um, at VCU. But, but I have dealt with that where it's been very difficult. And I talked through this with um, uh, a couple of, of presidents and it really helped me go back calmer because one president in particular, he basically said, Mike, you're, you're letting it get inside of you and eat you alive. And he said, it's really their problem. It's not your problem. And so you need to somehow find a way to flip it back to them and just let them talk and um, find the right place and venue and put them together and have them talk. And um, sure enough, his solution worked as opposed to me being the, the type A responsible one who thought I had to solve everybody's problems, which I still have a bit of um, that disease, but I'm working on it. Um, and uh, he was very helpful. But but it was a lot of stuff like that. The other was, candidly, um, one of my big jobs was to start a new medical school um, at the other institution from which I had come. And um, I teamed up with um, a president who had started a new medical school and was just, you know, literally a year or two ahead of me. I went and visited him and his team, and I came back with a very clear plan, um, including team, team members that I needed to hire, um, a very clear conceptual framework for a medical school that needed to address very, very serious health disparities in our communities, and also just access. There were just no doctors anywhere to be found anywhere near us. So, um, I mean, there were doctors, but a lot of new people moving in couldn't get doctors, and it was a real challenge. So um, I, I could not have done it without the help of that colleague president. It was a huge help. I guess this is a naive question. Is there a consortium of presidents that have medical schools? Is there like a space where it's just having conversations amongst senior, amongst presidents and chancellors with medical school? Not really presidents. Um, it's mostly deans through the AAMC, but it's a good mm -hmm. question. It's something that I basically tried to start when I was at APLU. We'd get together every so often. It was mostly focused on universities that had large medical centers because you know, a lot of us have a university and let's say, you know, our university is a billion and a half, you know, dollar institution. 
medical center in our case is another three and a half billion, right? So it's even larger and more complex. And of course, you know, it's it's all hanging together. And if one part of this place falls apart, you know, the rest of it's going to feel it. And so, um, yeah, we did get together a bit, but, you know, I, I think at some point that just sort of dissipated. Um, the deans of medicine, medical schools have largely sort of been the most connected. But, you know, when you have like my institution was started as a medical school and is very much a, a, a specialized oriented institution, you know, you need those connections. And so um, I, I try to reach out to presidents that are presidents of major medical academic medical centers just so that I have their views on frankly, how you get from being as much academic as we've been to being much more patient-centric and competitive with private health care systems. Well, that's where you'd need it. You'd, you'd need to cross the uh, public-private nonprofit divide there because you've got a lot of private institutions, yeah. some of which are very wealthy and might not feel like you know they're peers of yours, but then you've got a lot of big major Catholic universities that have them. I mean, so, so you'd have a... Yeah. It would be an interesting conversation set of conversations, I'm sure. Well, a lot of them sold their, you know, their well, exactly yeah. off, and, and and a lot of us have not. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, we have not. I think it's made um, our our purposes much clearer with regard to students training in these institutions. We have five health sciences schools, and and you add to that social work and engineering that all have major connections through our medical center in terms of research that we do. But yeah, and staying competitive is very, very difficult, very tough. Can I ask a slightly offbeat question that just occurred to me because of some conversations we've been having here? Whether you think, I actually raised it with some of your ACE uh, colleagues, I, I, I know you're involved in the ACE board, about ACE has, hasn't been doing up to now the public opinion polling that it was doing pre-pandemic and maybe even early in the pandemic. And I was asking what we thought may have happened as a result of the pandemic to the public perceptions about higher education and whether it had had been because I had a, we had a, a Kim Hunter Reed from the who's the commissioner of higher education in Louisiana was in our office uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. And she was talking about how she thought that the her institution's roles in their communities around the pandemic, she thought had increased the positive way that people were in her communities were looking at institutions. And so anyway, I was asking a question, but I'm curious whether, and especially with that dual role uh, and the role, important role that hospitals and others have played, do you have a sense of, of whether VCU's role in its community has changed as during the pandemic? A good, oh, that's a great question. I think it absolutely has. I think it's risen dramatically. Um, I think there's a level of understanding about our role and how important it is to everybody, not just certain people who people I think perceived it to be needy um, and, and um, who had our need or were in need of us. But yeah, I, I mean, Doug, honestly, I think that what's happened, although we haven't really scientifically measured this, I think we could probably predict that you know, this is really in many ways a great time in that um, it's a difficult time because of, you know, COVID. But COVID really shed light on, you know, where our people in this country are and where in this country our people are not. And so, you know, a lot of the changes that we see are focused on more inclusively engaging people who have not been a part of, of what's going on. I think there's also this need for us to really 
increase, candidly, what it means to be a public good and to restore faith in what we can as public entities do. Because I think a lot of people got cynical about that. And frankly, I'll tell you as a president for 27 years or so, um, I mean, one of the things that you, you're up against is the politics of people in power and the, you know, people who have that power, sometimes their interests are, let's just say, not so nobly focused on everybody, but more, you know, certain groups and that sort of thing. So, you know, one of the things I said to our freshmen, they were so excited to come back and um, we had like literally, I'm not kidding, I don't know how it happened, but we did an outdoor event, which we call freshman convocation. It used to be indoor. Um, there's supposed to be 4,000 people there. So that's the number of freshmen we have. And um, I, I know there were more than 4,000 people there in this huge central park that we have on our campus. And um, the number of students, you know, who came to me and said, thank you for not shutting us down. You know, we couldn't look at a screen for another minute. And then there were others who said, can you get more stuff online for us? You know, um, because we really like that option. But more who said they wanted to be in person. But one of the things I said to the, to the larger crowd is there's more information out there than there's ever been. But there are also more agendas than there have ever been. And you've got to develop your own sense and your own gut of what you believe in, what are your values, and decide whether or not what you're hearing matches to that instead of just reading something and assuming that it is what, what is, because it may not be what is, and it may not be what we need to be thinking about going forward. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I'm a little off of your, your quest, the context of your question, but you know, I think our communities are really looking to us. If you can't look to a public university for the truth, where can you look? And so we've got to be really disciplined about being sure that we are these places that people can look to for the truth. Um, and frankly, sometimes we're telling the truth about different things. And it's amazing to me that people will say, oh, well, you're just making that up. I'm like, well, actually, we're not. This is what data and facts actually show the truth to be. But then I listen more closely to them and I say, well, why not? Why do you not agree? And then I listen to them and I realize, oh, you have an agenda and it's not matching to your agenda. That's what it really is. <laughs> so I'm sorry that the facts don't line up with what you want to see, but that's just not going to happen. <laughs> That's a great quote that I just wrote there. So the last question I want to ask you is you have your State of the Union coming up in like a week, right? Yeah, and yeah. I am just curious, uh, as someone who's watched and read many of those, what is the mindset of a president coming into the State of the yeah. Union? Do you feel like you have to tell everyone everything that's good or do you have to introduce an entirely new agenda? Do you have to frame mm. the institution? Like what is sure. the, if you felt like you had a mandate for your, for writing your state of the union, yeah. what do you feel like that is? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always been particularly being in these huge organizations, you know, it's that one time when you think you can probably get everybody's attention for half an hour or whatever. And so I always make it a, hey, listen, I've been watching. I have kept count of all the great things that you have done collectively. I appreciate them. And here they are. And I try to talk about them. I try to say, look at what you've done to the graduation rate. Look at how many more students you've pulled forward. Look at how many patient, more patients' lives we've saved. Um, look at this program or that program that made a huge difference. Um, and so that's part of it. But I think a bigger part of it is people are always expecting, if you get this pattern going, and this is what I do, is I always make sure that I have something big to announce that's new. 
So one of the big things that I'll be talking about is the UIA and being a part of that and what that means to us and how that gives us a greater opportunity to catalyze this, this great work that we've been doing and, and leverage the, the ideas and thoughts of other, other institutions like ours. Um, but then the other um, thing will be huge for us. So I will make an announcement that is probably the biggest, in addition to the UIA, I will make an announcement that is the biggest announcement that I have made, I would say, in 2027 years. So I'm really excited about it. It will have a tremendous impact on human health, um, and it will really put a, a shape to VCU and our role in healthcare that we have never had before. So it has a clinical aspect to it, but it's a very heavy research aspect and it will have a very important educational aspect to it too, not just to the community, but to our students and especially our medical students. So I think students leaving BCU will be known for this particular, this particular thing that I'm gonna be talking about. It's very- Wow, cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah, you're really you're really leaving us. We're on the edge of our seat. We're going to have to tune in. This is that's actually very strategic PR on your on your. Yeah, work. I hadn't quite I mean, made. I didn't intend to make it sound like such a anger, <laughs> but I'm glad it came off. Sure, sure. <laughs> Well, uh, President Rao, this has really been wonderful to have you here today. Thank you for making the time. And we're, again, delighted to share the news that the UIA uh, has now its newest member of VCU. And we can't wait to continue our work together. That's already been very exciting. The team that you've assembled is really exceptional, and we're delighted to work with them. So, um, Doug, as always, great to see you. 